You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We've been making sounds ever since Homo sapiens first started yelling at one another. Zork, why did you let the fire die? Fire? What's fire? Okay, but even before humans, there have been sounds, believe it or not, from and including the Big Bang to the proverbial tree falling in the forest. But no one heard that because no one was there who could record it. But today, we take recorded sound for granted. Hey, man, I've made a mashup of some good old Pink Floyd dark side, my pet cricket amplified 30,000 times, and some offhand remarks by Vladimir Putin. Oh, okay, so same old, same old. We've been able to record and play back sounds for more than 100 years, but what's changed recently is that we can now analyze these sounds. And by that, I don't mean... Check it out. If you play the White Album backwards, you can hear... No, not that. I mean, computers have changed how we interpret the sounds... ...that are found to abound around us and allowed us to expound on some profound questions. Do dolphins have language? What's the weather like on Jupiter? And where is that kidnapper calling from is judged by the background sounds in the recording. Wait, I recognize that sound behind him. That's the cash register at the burger bucket on the east side of downtown Dayton. That's where he is. Let's roll. We can take sounds apart. And in doing so, whole worlds open up. It's big picture science. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm Seth Shostak. Okay, as we said, if there's no one in the forest with a recorder, the falling tree is effectively silent. So it was a good thing that oceanographer Bob Ziak was around when an iceberg ran aground in Antarctica. Not only was he around, he had a series of underwater microphones in the ocean. He later captured the sound of the iceberg breaking apart as well. Dr. Ziak has a sustained interest in the natural sounds of the ocean, and in analyzing them, which are part of the soundscape of the ocean, he and other scientists can better separate the natural sounds from the man-made seafaring sonnets. Bob, we'll hear that sound in a moment, but when an iceberg hits the continental shelf, what actually makes the noise we hear? The best analogy is that the iceberg is sort of resonating. So as it's, it's moving along, the wind and the waves are pushing the iceberg. And, and remember, the iceberg is essentially like a floating island of ice, you know, so it's a massive thing. And as it, it scrapes along and resonates, it's making these tones with the fundamental and harmonic overtones that are as loud as earthquakes, just dominant sounds in the ocean. Uh, also, as they go, as one iceberg we observed, as it floated northward into the South Atlantic Ocean, into the warmer waters, it began to break apart and crack apart. And these cracking sounds were also 
massively loud sounds. Okay, well, I can understand an iceberg breaking apart and making noise. Anything that breaks apart makes noise. Uh, but that, that other mechanism where you say it's just resonating, I mean, that's just like I, I, I can hit this lamp over here and there'll be some sort of boing. I mean, it'll, you know, mm-hmm. it, the resonant frequency. What, what's hitting the iceberg? Is that just the waves? No, it's not. The waves are hitting it, per se. But just you imagine the iceberg is like an island or a giant ship, and it has a keel. You know, it has the bottom of the iceberg. And that keel is this little, uh, well, big <laughs> chunk of ice that's sticking out of the bottom, and it actually physically impacts the side of a continent, in this case, Antarctica. It'll impact and it'll release, and it'll impact and release, and it'll stick and release. And every time that it sticks, it makes a very distinct sound or crack. And it's these series of cracks together that make the iceberg resonate, not unlike a tuning fork. Uh, and that's essentially what's going on, is the entire iceberg itself is the source of the sound. And because it's so large, the amplitude of that energy being projected on the ocean is, is enormous. Okay, so, you know, this is just like, I don't know, almost anything making a sound. You, you, you excite it, which is to say you hit it, <laughs> you give it a little bit of energy, and depending on how it's shaped and what it's made of and how stiff it is and stuff like that, it makes it, you know, a, a, a special frequency like pop bottles do when you blow air over the top of them. There's one tone for them that uh, seems to be characteristic of them. We're going to play one of your recordings of icebergs making noise. This is an iceberg tremor. Again, it was the iceberg's keel impacting the continental shelf of the Antarctic Peninsula. And as the wind and waves were pushing the iceberg, it was scraping, for lack of a better word, scraping along the seafloor, and it was that scraping that was causing individual cracks and pops, and that was making the iceberg resonate, resonating at the fundamental frequency of about 34 hertz, pretty low frequency, but still something that humans can hear. And now, how did you make that recording? I mean, were you in a ship nearby? What, what was the deal? We have a uh, array, a series of underwater microphones that we call hydrophones, and we take these hydrophones, and we had deployed them off the coast of the Antarctic Peninsula for several years. We anchor the hydrophones at the seafloor, and they sit there for a year just passively recording all the sound energy that is going on in the ocean nearby. And so we we put these hydrophones down to listen for submarine volcanic activity in the area. But uh, lo and behold, we recorded lots of ice noise. Well, we have a second sound here, which is, I guess, the death of an iceberg. It's an iceberg, you know, in its final breakup over ocean water. So that's that's called an icequake, is it, Bob? Yeah, we, we use that term, icequake, to describe those sounds. Basically, like I said, they're like earthquakes, but occurring in an ice. So, so that means that a lot of energy is being released here. That's correct. And I thought I read somewhere that some iceberg sounds are so loud that you can pick them up as far away as, I mean, virtually the equator, even though they're not taking place anywhere near the equator. Yes, we uh, have sensors. We have hydrophones at the equator, and we have seen records of some of the iceberg tremor even, and then they are sourced right on the coastline of Antarctica. All right. Well, Bob, you've recorded thousands of ice quakes. What interests you about these things? I mean, you know, it's great listening pleasure, but but what is it that's really driving this research? Oh, what interests me um, is just the amount of 
sound that's being made by ice breakup off of Antarctica and how it seasonally changes, which makes sense, right? As we're going to winter, things tend to freeze up and be quieter. And in the summer when it's warmer, things tend to get warmer and break apart. But um, it's just a lot to be learned about the dynamics of ice around Antarctica. And I think learning what natural impacts are on the oceans. I think that's a really key thing. And many people really understand that it's important to see what's going on in the oceans and really begin to understand what all the contributors are to the ocean environment, you know, from the man-made impacts all the way down to volcanoes and icebergs that are breaking apart. You know, we're just trying to learn how our Earth works. Well, Bob Ziak, thank you so very much for talking with us. My pleasure. Bob Ziak is an oceanographer at the Hatfield Marine Science Center at Oregon State University, and he's the program manager of the acoustics program at NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. As he said, the ocean abounds in natural sounds, but man-made noise also contributes to the cacophony. Ships' propellers can make a churning clamor that is able to travel hundreds of kilometers through the briny deep. And that's a concern to Michael Porter. He's the senior scientist and the president of HLS, Heat, Light, and Sound, Research. His group has been working with NOAA to create the first global map of shipping noise. Analyzing this racket determines how deeply it affects creatures who make the watery world their home, such as whales. We reached him in between conference sessions in a cavernous hallway in Montreal. Mike, if I dived into the Atlantic off, I don't know, the coast of Massachusetts and and just listened, would would I hear anything other than the bubbles from my breathing? (laughs) Well, uh, I'm not sure exactly what you would hear in that space, to be honest with you, but there's a whole series of different sound sources that would be of interest or concern to you, perhaps. Uh, You could be hearing certainly the noises of ships, but also the noise of perhaps pile driving if there's some construction offshore, or uh, perhaps in maybe other parts of the world you'd be hearing seismic air gun arrays looking for oil and gas, and possibly you might hear Navy sonar in other places. So so it could be actually quite a noisy environment. I never think of the underwater environment as being particularly subject to noise pollution, although I do recall a story from, I don't know, I think it was like a dozen years ago that there was some claim that military sonars, some new military sonars, were messing up life for the whales. W- was that true? Uh, I think I can safely say that that is true. There was, uh, after an incident in the Bahamas some years back, there was uh, a very careful in- investigation by the U.S. Navy to figure out what had happened. And they did, in the end, conclude that they probably were responsible for the beaching of several different species of animals. Well, isn't part of the problem the fact that the whales... I mean, they have these very extended songs that I guess the male whales sing to the female whales, uh, but that, you know, it's very low-frequency sound. It's around, I don't know, 20 hertz. It's down the, the kind of sound that John Lennon might have made by kicking a two-by-four when on the stage or something. You can barely hear it, but maybe mm-hmm. the whales can hear it. But those, those sounds, to begin with, they, they travel great distances underwater, or, or am I incorrect about that? Well, yes, you know, it's, it's amazing how far sound can travel in the ocean. We've done scientific experiments where we, uh, we broadcast music, really, just to get a sense of how well the equipment was performing. And music broadcast at very modest levels, equivalent to what you would use from a, a home stereo at a low volume level. Uh, we could pick that up five kilometers or eight kilometers away, so let's say five miles for or non-metric listeners, uh, you could pick it up and hear it and it sounded beautifully clear. But you know, in truth, there's so much that's uh, not known at the moment about 
what frequencies affect which animals. Uh, you were talking about whales. Humpbacks tend to, to sing in a frequency band, which is very much like what we humans use. But there are a huge variety, obviously, of, of species of marine mammals that use completely different bands, down to 20 hertz. Uh, blue whales and gray whales, and then the humpbacks in the mid-frequency bands, uh, let's say, and then up to dolphins that go up to uh, frequencies that we can't hear, as, as high as 150 kilohertz. So there's concern about the whole range of frequency bands. Okay, so uh, all noise pollution is potentially important here. Apparently you've mapped out the sound pollution in the world's oceans. That sounds like an incredibly ambitious job. How, how did you do that? <laughs> Well, yes, uh, it is a very ambitious job, and uh, I should perhaps emphasize that we've just really started with this. We've been looking first at ship noise. I draw an analogy to uh, lighting in a room where if you want to figure out how bright a room is going to be, then first of all you look at perhaps how many lights there are per square meter on the ceiling and obviously how bright the lights are. But you also look at the, the boundaries of the room, whether you have a dark carpet or a light carpet. And uh, there are analogies to all of those things in the ocean in terms of how sound propagates. So the first step is to get all of that information, and then we put it into a propagation model and uh, predict how it eliminates the ocean. So uh, where is it noisy? What, what part of the ocean is noisiest? Well, you know, the, the maps that come out of this modeling are really interesting, but the first thing that you see is, is uh, as you might expect, is that there are shipping lanes, particularly between the U.S. and Europe and the U.S. and Asia. You see a lot of noise in the Mediterranean and uh, you know, noise, for instance, in the Suez Canal where there's a lot of shipping traffic. So it's mostly ships. I mean, it sounds like it. No, actually, I don't want to give that impression. We did a very detailed study for the Gulf of Mexico recently, which was sort of the more local version of this work. And in the Gulf of Mexico, you can look comparatively at all the different sound sources. And their air guns used for seismic exploration are probably the dominant sound source. So it all depends on where you're located. Bottom line on this, Mike, is there really any hard evidence that marine creatures are being disrupted by this noise pollution? I mean, is this something that might be a worry or is this something that is a worry? Well, that's a very good question, Seth. I think the answer is that there is no hard evidence at this moment about the role of shipping noise, although I'm sure there are people that would contradict me about that. As we discussed earlier, there is pretty clear evidence that Navy sonar can be disruptive uh, in certain cases, but uh, probably the, the best answer to your question is that this is a, a big research area at the moment, and there's really very little known right now about how this disrupts uh, marine life. Michael Porter, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you, Seth. Michael Porter is president and CEO of HLS, Heat, Light, and Sound Research. And here's what he and the other engineers hear when they pick up shipping noise in the ocean. The recording is somewhat ambiguous and it has other signals mixed in too, but it does sound like a racket. Thanks to HLS Chief Engineer Paul Hersky, who got this recording to us. Coming up, decoding one of the most famous lines in history, certainly the most famous uttered on the moon. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. 
But did Neil say man or did he say a man? Native Ohio speakers come to the rescue. And recreating the first recorded sound before Thomas Edison put a needle to tinfoil. Its sounds abound on Big Picture Science. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Patrick Feaster is a sound media historian at Indiana University. His interest in recording sound goes back a long way. When he was a boy, he cut a few records with some help. My parents would cut pieces of paper into the shape of records. I would draw a label on them, put my finger in the middle, spin them around, and and sing what I thought ought to be on the records. Well, maybe we can't play those early records. But today, Patrick Feaster and his colleagues are displaying a talent for making audible what was never meant to be heard. They've used some high-tech tricks to play back written sound recordings made before the American Civil War, the first ever, allowing us to hear the voices of people who lived 150 years ago. Now, today we take recording technology for granted, but in the middle of the 19th century, no one imagined such a thing. But people did develop very simple machines to write down the sounds of the human voice or of musical instruments. They were interested in the patterns that voices created. The patterns were made using a mechanical arrangement that turned sound pressure waves in the air, that that sound, into squiggles on a sheet of paper. The results are called phonetograms. Playback had to wait until Thomas Edison developed the first practical phonograph in 1877. And that was with sound recorded on cylinders covered in tin foil. A few years later, the foil was replaced by wax. Yeah, and a century after that, DJs could brag about having a fat stack of wax. And eventually the flat discs we call records. But it all started with these silent phonetograms. And the first person to make these first recordings... Exactly who the first person was depends a little bit on what you think a sound recording is. Now, you take a tuning fork, stick a stylus on one of the prongs, start it vibrating, run it on a piece of paper, you can make a wavy line. Is that a sound recording? I think most people would accept that sound recording is something like this. You record sounds out of the air in terms of their actual vibrations. When were they first doing this? The first person to ever do what I just described was a French typographer and proofreader named Édouard Léon Scott de Martinville. And he'd been proofreading a book on physiology. He read an account of how the human ear worked, that the eardrum could pick up any sounds out of the air. And he thought, well, if I stick a little pencil 
on an artificial ear, I can use this to record any sound the human ear is physiologically capable of hearing. So he just had a membrane to mimic uh, the human eardrum, I suppose. He, he glues a pencil on that, and he has a piece of paper that the pencil can write on. He has to move the paper or the pencil so that it's always not writing in the same place, and he gets, he gets a recording. Right, so exactly. did they actually do this and when? He did actually do this. It's slightly different from what you just described. He had a funnel with a membrane at the end of it, a little stylus at the end of that that trailed on a surface covered with the soot of an oil lamp so it could scratch a wavy line in it. Most of the recordings we have were made on sheets of paper wrapped around a, around a rotating drum. And the year? When, when was this, roughly? Well, he started doing this in the 1850s. And the best examples we have are from 1860, 17 years before Edison invented his phonograph. He wasn't really trying to record sound to sell it in shops. I mean, there was no way to play these things back, right? Right. And a lot of people are surprised by this. They say, why on earth would you want to record sounds if you weren't going to play them back? But this is a very anachronistic way of thinking about things. If you hadn't even imagined the possibility of playback, well, then the idea of just recording sound, even just on paper, even just to look at, had staggering implications. All right. He had these recordings, and his hope was that people could be trained to just look at these waveforms, these wavy lines, and say, hey, that's the word the, or that's the word funambulist, or, or something, you know. That's what he was ultimately hoping for. Uh, he also thought that you could pick up things like intonation, which you can actually tell a bit from looking at one of these things. Uh, you know, are the, are the waveforms bunched together more closely? Are they spread out further apart? That gives you a sense for what the pitch was. I think his hope was that people could sit down and read, say, a great performance of a play and hear it in your mind's ear as you were reading along. Did anybody actually learn how to do that? No, it, it doesn't seem that it's actually possible for the human eye to make out actual words from the wavy lines that you would associate with a phonograph or a wave file on a computer screen. Can you describe what these things look like? Because to me, it sounds like, uh, you know, what you'd see in a traditional seismograph recording where you have a, you know, a spiral wavy line on a piece of paper that was on a drum. But in this case, of course, it's not the vibrations of the earth that you're recording. It's the vibrations of someone's voice. Well, what these look like, if you imagine you've recorded a wavy line as a helix around a drum, you take the piece of paper off it's a rectangular sheet, mostly blackened, and then a series of lines across it, wiggly lines. So, Patrick, today we do have the ability to play these sonograms, to convert these wavy lines into sound, and I believe you were among the team members that first did this. Could you play us one of those early recordings? Absolutely. Here is what is really the oldest clearly recognizable recording of sound of the human voice in existence. This is the inventor himself, Edouard Léon Scott de Martinville, singing the song Eau Claire de la Lune in Paris on the 9th of April, 1860. I can't say that that's really a hi-fi recording, but if you have some idea of what he might be singing, then you can understand that. Right, it's not, not bad for 1860. <laughs> 
Now, you notice that he sang very, very slowly. In fact, when we first released this recording, we played it at, at uh, twice the correct speed. We thought it was a young girl's voice. But uh, we are quite sure that this is the correct playback speed. They didn't have electric motors, right? So, I mean, the speed was determined by somebody just turning a crank. Right. Uh, in fact, the, the recording speed was very irregular. If you played one of these things straight off the sheet, it would sound something like this. But fortunately, Scott also recorded the vibrations of a tuning fork alongside the trace of the voice. And so that gave us something equivalent to what audio engineers today might call a pilot tone that we're, we were able to use to exactly reconstruct the original recording speed. We typically give Edison credit for the phonograph, and it certainly was one of his most commercially successful inventions. What did Edison do that these guys didn't? Well, Edison was the first person not just to record a sound, but also to play it back as sound so that we could hear it again. All right, and he did that by recording not on sheets of paper. He had, what would he use, tinfoil? Right, the machine he first showed in public took a sheet of tinfoil wrapped around a drum and indented the tinfoil into a groove so that it was was deeper or shallower. And so this had the advantage of being able to revibrate the stylus in the membrane when you ran it back over the inscription you'd made. You couldn't do that with a phonogram. And, and he did this completely mechanically, right? I mean, it was just a, a big horn with a needle at the end of it uh, connected to a diaphragm, I suppose. Right. There's no electricity involved here, nothing like a microphone. This is just based on the sheer physical pressure of sound waves. You, you had to shout? Well, you didn't necessarily have to shout, but you had to talk pretty pretty loud and you had to shove your, your mouth right down into the mouthpiece. Patrick, do you have one of these uh, tinfoil recordings? I don't think that I've ever, I've ever heard a recording made on tinfoil. Well, until recently, nobody had heard any old tinfoil recordings. Uh, ironically, it, it's taken a little bit longer to get sound out of a tinfoil that was intended to be played back uh, than it has from phonograms that weren't intended to be played back. But here is some audio that's recovered from an actual tinfoil recording made in St. Louis in 1878. Uh, This is really the first really intelligible sound we've got back from one of these very, very early Edison recordings was successfully recovered by Carl Haber's team at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. And this is an example of the sort of sound that was recorded at very early exhibitions of the phonograph to show people what this this marvel of reproducing recorded sound was like. I have to say, I am amazed that that kind of sound quality would have been commercially successful. (laughs) Well, it it did leave people with the impression that the phonograph was just a toy. It's another decade at least before the phonograph gets developed into anything that anyone really thought was practical. But I would say that that's a very typical recording for what it has in it. You've got music played on a cornet, uh, little snippets of uh, nursery rhymes, very typical stuff for these early exhibitions. Well, finally, Patrick, today phonograms are mostly gone, although my doctor still makes uh, electrocardiograms, which is basically the same idea. But we record voices and music digitally today using technology that for most people is completely opaque. Have we lost something now that the analog methods of putting wavy lines in vinyl or even on paper are mostly gone? 
Well, sure, we've lost a certain tangibility. I, I've made recordings on wax cylinder. I've played back recordings on wax cylinder. I, I like the materiality of those formats. But at the same time, uh, digital recording might be bringing us closer back to uh, Scott's way of thinking about recorded sound. And I spend a lot of my time looking at wavy lines on computer screens, which is exactly the sort of thing he was tracing on paper back in 1860. Patrick Feaster, thank you so very much for uh, talking with us. Thanks for having me. Patrick Feaster is of sound mind as a sound media historian at Indiana University. Edward Leon Scott de Martinville had interests beyond recording sound. He also had some broader ideas about recording larger scale phenomena. Uh, He was one of the first people to propose using the telegraph to keep track of large scale weather patterns. So in a sense, he was thinking of expanding media all around the planet. Scott de Martinville would have been undoubtedly pleased then that today we have expanded media and sound recording all the way to the moon. Okay, I remember where I was when Neil Armstrong uttered his famous line on July 20th, 1969. I was at a birthday party. Mine. But no one was paying any attention to that. It was all eclipsed by the moon, Walker, on television. The first steps on a world other than the Earth. A great moment in history. And to this day, it's a source of pride, of patriotism, and uh, of controversy. The controversy is, did he say, that's one small step for man, or... That's one small step for a man. And it's been the subject of water cooler chatter ever since by, at the very least, linguists. Did Neil Armstrong utter an A or not? I mean, seriously, this has been debated for the last 40 years. Both NASA and Armstrong claim the A is there, one small step for a man. Well, what does it matter if it's a small step for a man or a small step for man? Well, is he talking about his own experiences there on the moon, or is he making a profound statement about our species' collective effort? Anyway, Laura Dilley is one of those linguists, and she and her team think they're closer to the answer thanks to computer analysis of Armstrong's famous pronouncement. Her computer is at the University of Michigan, but it's native Ohio speakers she's most interested in. Neil Armstrong was born in Wapakoneta, Ohio. Both Armstrong and NASA blamed the, um, the failure of the word uh to be transmitted on faulty equipment, and that's understandable. This was the moon, after all. But our take on the matter is that talkers of American English, and, and those in Ohio in particular, commonly speak the word for as fur. And furthermore, these little words like ah uh, tend to get blended together with their context acoustically. This is something that we call co-articulation. That is simply to say the words get smeared together in typical speech. And that's one of the reasons that it's so hard to program a computer to understand the voice. Well, Laura, Neil was from central Ohio. So, so what did you do? Did you just get a big database of, of people speaking in central Ohio and try and decide you know, what it was that Neil was really saying that way? We did indeed. So it's been observed that words like for can, as I said, be spoken as fur. So to investigate this question, we looked at a large database of recordings of talkers from Ohio, some old, some young, some a male, female. So, I mean, no matter what he promises, and you're voting him in there for what he's promising you. And analyzed the acoustic patterns in their speech, pulling out all the instances of the words fora and for. 
to compare the uh, sound pattern information in these signals to see how well talkers from Ohio do differentiate those two phrases. He kept saying, well, what do you want these taxes for if you're not going to provide for schools? So, Laura, what's the bottom line? I mean, what were your conclusions? Did he say what he said he said? So we um, focused on those pronunciations that involved only fur. And we found that people use a slightly longer or more drawn out timing pattern for the words for a, spoken as fur, than when they say just the word for. But the distributions of the sound pattern information and, and the timing information specifically are highly overlapping. And what that means is the speech patterns are highly confusable so that it's entirely plausible that Neil Armstrong spoke the word ah, but that people heard the phrase without the word ah. So do you think this controversy is ever going to go away then? I mean, it sounds like it's a bit ambiguous. We think that there's scientifically not a way of fully resolving this question, but what we've done, we think, is to partially vindicate Neil Armstrong by adding substance and evidence to his claim that he had throughout his life that the word uh, was actually spoken when he landed on the moon. Well, you know, my opinion, take the man at his word. I mean, he was 250,000 miles closer to the action. Well, Laura Dilley, thank you so very much for speaking to us and also with the pronunciation that's totally unambiguous. I kind of regret that we don't know what Columbus said when he waded ashore at Watling Island in 1492. Thanks very much. Thank you, my pleasure. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Laura Dilley is an assistant professor in the Department of Communicative Sciences and Disorders at Michigan State University. Do you think that interview goes to fur? But let's not speak of fur. Let's speak of feathers. Anyone who's walked through a forest or just gotten up at sunrise knows that the feathered bunch makes quite a racket, but now we know what all the fuss is about. Next, what birds are really saying to each other. Sounds abound on Big Picture Science. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. For all our ability to encode information in sound, we have nothing on these guys. Well, actually, we do have a lot on them, but they're pretty good, too. Our avian neighbors exhibit extraordinary hearing and vocalizing abilities, and later we'll hear a neurobiologist describe how scientists can use bird sonograms to decode avian calls and cries and find out just what our flapping friends are saying. But first, let's meet some birds, and for that, we need a tour guide. Hi, my name is Jenny Papka. I am co-director of Native Bird Connections. Native Bird Connections is an organization in the San Francisco Bay Area that cares for injured birds and educates the public about their needs in the wild. It currently has 16 birds in its care. They're all raptors. 
Molly visited Jenny and her friends on site. Now these are eagles, falcons, owls, and then I was going to say and raptors, but it turns out all these birds are raptors. That's right. So eagles, hawks, falcons, and owls are all considered raptors or birds of prey. And each one of these animals has met some fate in their life to where they can't be in the wild anymore. Even though we're in a secluded location, we, it's very hard to get away from the noises of traffic altogether, isn't it? You can hear it in the background. You can, and unfortunately I'm upslope from a very busy road. And that was just going inside this gated area. I have to mind my step. So we're approaching a, a complex of two aviaries right now. We're now looking at the great horned owl enclosure, and this owl is a, a little bit startled that we're right here. He, his feathers are a little puffed on his body. He's an animal that's handicapped. He cannot fly. He came from Pendleton, Oregon, and injured his wing. We don't know how that happened. And what is his hearing like, this owl's hearing? His hearing is astonishing. It always amazes me that they will tolerate our human foibles because their hearing is so acute. Can they hear, uh, for example, a mouse? You bet they can hear a mouse. You know, there have been studies about great grays being able to hear, great gray owls, being able to hear the activity of rodents under the snow. And not only hearing that, but being able to pinpoint the actual location of those mice, pounce on them, and successfully catch them. So there's a bit of commotion here, and I recognize the participants. This is a, a bald eagle? A bald eagle is correct. Yes, she's a little chatty because unlike most of the raptors, she is more social. The bald eagles tend to hang out in groups, and she's now alerting the group that somebody's different here. So this is an example where she heard us before she saw us. Absolutely. She actually heard you arrive, and if she wants it to be louder, it can be. So it is intended to carry great distances so all the neighboring eagles understand what's going on. Now here, another bird vocalizing over here and and she is an owl I can identify that much what kind of owl this is called a Eurasian eagle owl and that's the largest species of owl in the world it really sounds as though she's saying who like who are you her hooting is similar to the great horned owl but different whereas a great horned owl will have a cadence of hoots she has the single hoot who the bald eagle and the eagle owl yeah. are both vocalizing right now, but, but they're also really watching their environment. They've done research on owl sight, and their color vision is probably about the same as ours. And they've done that research based on the physiology of the inside of the eye. They have cones in their uh, retina surface, just like we do, and they have about the same amount. But they have far, far, far more rods, which allow them a low-light capacity vision. So now we're standing next to a little barn, and the resident is a barn owl, of course. Uh, he is, um, has the typical heart-shaped face and the real white, white chest, and now he's starting to notice that we're here and he's going into a defense posture. 
He's dropping his head and he's opening his wings ever so slightly and wagging his little body back and forth. This is an attempt to be intimidating. It it works. And if I were a mouse right now, I would be quite fearful. (laughs) Most of the time, they also couple this behavior with a sound that's something like a blowtorch. It's sort of a sound. He looked up when you did that. He absolutely responded at that. In looking at this barn owl too, I think it's uh, worthy to note that his heart-shaped face is really a sound parabola. That uh, facial disc is unique to all owls and it is rimmed by specialized feathers that are a little more rigid and it serves to funnel sound to their ears. In barn owls, there's been a lot of studies about their hearing capacity and their ears are tremendously asymmetrical. That is, one ear sits up high and one ear sits rather low on their skull. And this allows the sound to hit each ear at slightly different times, something that their brain can automatically triangulate the location of the sound based on that difference. Humans may not be as adept, but if we practice, we can be as alert, perhaps, as some of these birds. I think that you just nailed it. I think that we have the capacity We just need to train ourselves to be open to it. It's been my philosophy all along that the animals have a tremendous amount of information to teach me, but I have to learn how to be receptive. It's a matter of focusing and, as you say, paying attention. Well, Jenny Pepka, thank you so much for this tour and for speaking with us. Thank you so much. What a a privilege to have you here. Jenny Pepka is co-director of Native Bird Connections. Okay, so what are those raptors and other birds rapping about? Well, we actually have an idea now, and that's because computers allow us to analyze and unpack these bird vocalizations. Mike Webster has spent hours upon hours listening to birds in the wild and then analyzing the recordings back in his lab. He's professor of neurobiology and behavior and director of the Macaulay Library at Cornell University, which has been collecting natural history recordings since 1929. There are more than 175,000 audio recordings in that collection. And turning those sounds into sonograms, which are a variation of the phonetogram recordings that we heard about earlier from Patrick Feaster, we're learning that birds are chirping about a lot more than just having spotted the neighbor's cat. Mike, the call of the bald eagle that Jenny introduced us to, I assume that that's a sound you've heard many times. I have. That's, uh, those sounds in the background of your tour were a very typical bald eagle sort of vocalization. Um, <laughs> I think, frankly, it's a sort of noise that would surprise most people that that's what comes out of this gigantic bird is that very high-pitched sort of chatter that they do. Now, Jenny pointed out the extraordinary sharp hearing of owls and that an owl can hear a mouse underneath the snow. And this is something that researchers actually determined in the lab, isn't it? They did kind of an extraordinary test on owl hearing. They did. Uh, um, and it's uh, it's an extraordinary test because it's, it's so simple but has such a clear answer. Um, and what the experiment was is that they had a barn owl in the laboratory and they turned off all the lights and they found that the the owl could capture a mouse running across the floor in the lab even with no lights on. Now of course that doesn't mean that the owl's not using smell or or infrared vision or something like that to localize the mouse and so the acid test that they did was that they took a little piece of paper, wadded it up so it was a ball of paper, tied a string to it and pulled that in the dark across the lab floor 
So it just made this quiet little scratching noise that was sort of like the sound of a mouse um, walking across the floor. And the owl zoomed down from its perch and, and nabbed the piece of paper as if it were a mouse with no other, no other clues other than the sound that that piece of paper was making. I think that shows not only not only was it a cool experiment that that nailed the answer, but it really shows how sharp the owl's hearing is. It's it's hearing a little wad of paper skeetering across the floor that I'm sure none of us would notice. So the ability of the owl to distinguish this uh, the sound of the mouse from, say, the rustling of the trees or anything else, does that have anything to do with their different temporal resolution? And that is an ability that they have. It's different from ours. And, and what does that mean? Yeah, so that's one area where the hearing of birds is actually quite dramatically different from our hearing. In terms of frequency and, and things like that, our hearing is, is pretty similar to that of birds. But with respect to temporal resolution, we, we pale in comparison. A bird can distinguish uh, two sounds that are almost one right on top of each other and tell that it's two different sounds and, and, and distinguish between those and tell, for example, that they are t- at two different pitches. And so birds are able to, to separate these very rapid changes in sound, one note to the other, that can go uh, like 200 notes in a second, they could distinguish and actually hear all 200 of those. We would not hear all 200 notes. And then is each note packed with information? Is it kind of like hieroglyphics or something like that? Or is it a single word? It is packed with information. So the, what that information is exactly, we're, we're still deciphering. Uh, but the notes are the information units of song or of calls. And so if we think about our own speech, uh, if I have a sentence and I'm speaking a sentence, then there are several words in that sentence. Each one of those words has a certain meaning, but it's the combination of the various words that has the full meaning. And I think birdsong is the same way. You can take a birdsong and take the different notes and, and rearrange them and some rearrangements, the birds will ignore and still respond to it as if it's the same song. But other rearrangements obliterates the meaning and they don't respond at all. So it's really not just the notes themselves, but the combination of the notes, the order they come in, and those sorts of things that have meaning to the bird. Now, you've made sonograms of mm-hmm. bird song. Um, can you describe how you do that and what it's revealed about the sounds, the vocalization of these animals? Well, these days, making a sonogram is easy because there's software to do it. In the old days, <laughs> uh, we, did, we didn't have that software, and it was, a, it was a physical labor. And changing an acoustic signal like a sound or a bird song into something that we can visualize really opens a door for scientists to go in and actually do research. Because once we visualize it, once we can make a picture out of it, we can measure things. We can measure the pitch, the change in pitch over time. We can measure note length, all those sorts of things. And then we can compare one bird to another, different species, males versus females, young versus old, those sorts of things, and start to understand what it is that those songs might mean. That is the big question. Do mm-hmm. we have any idea what it is that the birds are saying to each other? I mean, is there sort of the Rosetta Stone equivalent <laughs> for deciphering it? Uh, the Rosetta Stone is still out there on the horizon. That's where we're. That's where we're trying to get to. Um, right now, I'd say we're at the tip of the iceberg. We know some of the things, some of the information that's in those those vocal signals, uh, but we certainly 
can't um, break it down into its full meaning. Um, so we know, for example, that when birds are giving vocal signals, they, there are different categories of information. So sometimes the information might be, watch out, there's a predator coming, or I'm a male and I, I want you to mate with me, or this is my territory, stay away. So there are these categories of information that we've, we've done a pretty good job of deciphering. But now we're starting to dig deeper, and as we scratch deeper in that surface, we're finding deeper and deeper layers of more and more detailed information. At first, it was sort of the thinking was they're just telling each other what species they are. Mm. Yeah, and now we're understanding that they're talking about their emotional state, um, whether they need a mate or not, what sort of condition they're in. Um, for example, we now know that many birds give not just an alarm call to a predator approaching, but they have different kinds of alarm calls for different kinds of predators. So they can distinguish between and tell, you know, their friends and buddies in the same flock that there's either a predator coming from the ground or a predator coming from the air. We also know now that birds can recognize individuals so the, by, by their voices alone. So a bird's vocalization, the signal, the song that it gives, not only says, I'm a cardinal, but it says, I'm Fred the Cardinal. Um, and it might even say, I'm Fred the Cardinal, and I'm in really good body condition, so you should stay off my territory. Here's a question about birds' song that has struck me many times when I listen to birds outside my window, is how repetitive they are. Mm-hmm. So you get woo, 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 whoop, woo, 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 whoop. Okay, I'm, I'm not really... And that was beautiful. Adept, thank you. I'm not <laughs> adept at doing bird calls. But it's, it's the same call over and over and over. Do we have any idea why they need to repeat themselves? Well, birds do repeat themselves, um, but they they don't repeat themselves quite as... Some repeat themselves much more than others, I'll say. Because it would seem if you're saying, I'm a male, come mate with me, mm-hmm. how many times do you need to say that to get the point across? You could say it a couple times, but if they're saying over and over, you know, or I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. <laughs> well, I think most men in the audience might realize you have to say it a lot of times <laughs> often. <laughs> Uh, but the, I think there's two answers to, for the bird perspective. One is that if one of the reasons that a bird is giving its song is to defend its territory, then it really does want to say, this is my territory and I'm still here. This is my territory and I'm still here, et cetera, et cetera. Because as soon as he stops doing that, some other male in the area might think, okay, there's a free territory over there I could go infiltrate. But probably a bigger piece of it is that the males are constantly talking to females, and they are constantly advertising themselves. And they're doing it in ways that can be potentially very challenging. A lot of these bird songs are sort of like vocal acrobatics, and they're challenging to deliver. And if a female's listening and listens to a male sing the same song over and over again, she can get an idea of whether he's a good acrobat or a poor acrobat. And if that translates back into his genetic quality, that will affect her decision of whether to mate with him or not. So it represents his physical endurance. Potentially, yes. One of the things that came up in the discussion with Jenny as we set out a, off on our tour is so even though the area was wooded and fairly secluded, it was uh, nonetheless impossible to escape the noise of the road below. How might that noise, that ambient sound or even more dramatic sound from the urban world, how does that affect birds? Well, that's a, an excellent question, and what we're learning now is that it most definitely does affect birds and, for that matter, other animals that, that live in the world around us. These days, it's hard to go any place on the planet where you don't 
hear humans. Um, even in a remote forest, you can hear a plane flying overhead. And of course, in highly urbanized areas where there's a lot of people, there's even more sound. And there's in particular this low-pitched, deep sort of throbbing hum that is uh, the hum of humanity in a, in a city. And what we're finding is that birds in cities and highly urbanized areas actually sing differently than the same species of birds living in more rural areas where there's less human noise. So, for example, because of that very low-pitched, throbbing hum of humanity that you find in a city, city birds tend to sing at higher pitches, higher frequencies than do birds out in the more wooded rural areas where there isn't so much human noise. So birds are adjusting to the noise we make, and they're probably adjusting in a lot of ways other than just frequency, and we're just starting to understand that. Mike Webster, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And for doing so at a frequency that we can hear. (laughs) Mike Webster is a professor of neurobiology and behavior and director of the Macaulay Library at Cornell University. You can find a link to the Macaulay Library on our website, bigpicturescience.org. Let's hear it for our production team, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. And the support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to Sounds Abound, and you can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook, become a fan of the program, and you can leave your comments there as well. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer over-the-air radio because you like the idea of sound modulations converted to radio frequency modulations, well, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like this show. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.